Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows chronic illness is a feminist issue. Today we have Zoe, Kellen, and Laura. Today we're going to be talking about chronic illness. As someone who has an ongoing battle with an autoimmune disorder, which comes with a slew of other chronic uh, issues, so to speak, this is a topic I've wanted to talk about on the podcast for a long time. I'm very excited for today's guest because she's someone I have been um, following her articles on chronic illness for a couple of years now and feel very grateful to be able to get to talk to her about all of this. Um, you may have seen her writings in Teen Vogue, Bitch Media, Vice, Vulture, Rewire, or a bunch of other places. Um, but if not, you should definitely go look them up after this episode, and I'm sure we'll be linking to some in the episode description. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Caroline Riley. Yay, welcome. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll introduce myself. Um, I am a writer, uh, and a, a, I have a Juris Doctor from... Uh, Boston College Law School. Um, I've been writing on chronic illness now for about four years, which is about as long as I have had uh, an endometriosis diagnosis. Um, and yeah, like like we said, I you can find my writing in Bitch Media, um, Washington Post, Teen Vogue on reproductive health and um, chronic illness, medical misogyny. Um, I also do a good amount of research and writing on issues related to abortion access, specifically for young people trying to access abortion, um, as well as some culture writing. Um, So you can find those, uh, you can find me at a bunch of different places writing about those things. And I'm really excited to be here chatting about this today. It's something that's really important to me, and I'm always happy to, to have a conversation about it. So thank you. Thanks for coming on. Yes. Yay. So I think um, something that I really wanted to talk about is the disbelief or disregard for women's pain, which I know is something that you've written about. I'm sure it's something that probably we have all experienced um, and are aware of, including most of our listeners um, that are women. So in an article that you wrote for Bitch, you described women's pain as existing in the crossroads of stigma, disbelief, and misogyny. Uh, It's super common for women's pain to be disbelieved. I've had that a lot with doctors, especially male doctors, but really any doctor. Um, or to be written off as just anxiety or hysteria back in the day or you know, other kind of mental health labels. And according to the study I was reading by University of Maryland Law School on medical gender bias, which is called The Girl Who Cried Pain, if anyone wants to read that, Um, women are significantly more likely to experience chronic pain than men, but significantly less likely to receive any adequate treatment Mm -hmm. for it. And um, something else that I found out when I was doing a lot of my own research in trying to figure out my diagnosis is that 70% of chronic health patients are women, but 80% of participants in studies for chronic health health are men. So yeah, I mean, women's, (laughs) women's health is like widely ignored, even though very clearly experienced. So those are just some of the statistics. There is a ton of information if you look this up. So, yeah, not really a specific question, just kind of something that I wanted to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we see it not only specifically with issues related to reproductive health. That's just what I can speak to because obviously my diagnosis is related to that. But 
you know, I know for me, I was presenting symptoms from the time I was 12. Um, you know, it wasn't something that came as a surprise to anybody, but it was something that I technically had been going to the doctor for, for like almost, like almost 10 years, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out what was wrong. And the first time somebody even mentioned endometriosis to me, I was in my first year of law school. So I was like 23 or 24, I want to say. Um, and, you know, even, even at that moment, it was only in passing and it was, you know, after countless ultrasounds and weird visits to the doctor where I was like, I think something is really wrong. I think I have this pain. And, you know, even after I got not even a formal diagnosis, but just somebody mentioning it to me, it took a really, really long time, you know, and a botched surgery and bad treatments for someone to realize, you know, for someone to listen to me and say, actually, we need to do more about this. We need to go in again. We need to, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into all of that. But, um, you know, the disbelief didn't stop with the diagnosis and having a name for it. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was an ongoing, and it still is, I think, in, in a lot of respects um, for me. And I know everybody who lives, um, you know, with chronic conditions. I have a lot of friends who have endometriosis who deal with the same thing, even if they have, you know, a pathology diagnosis where they've been in with a surgeon and they have, a you know, a pathology report. They still face, you know, disbelief. And also, I think, significant minimization of, of what they're going through, even if someone is like, concedes that you might have something they you know there's still a sense of well it can't be that bad because you know you're just being hysterical you're overreacting or you know and, and the reality is I think a lot of us are being asked to be a lot stronger than the people who disbelieve us would would be able to be um, in all honesty yeah I think that's that's absolutely true I'm as Zoe said I'm sure a bunch of our listeners um, have had experiences with with doctors not taking them seriously I know I certainly have um, and I'll probably end up talking about it at some point some of my weird like medical issues that took um, that, like I started manifesting when I was literally two years old and didn't get figured out until like my senior year of college um, I also just wanted to note that I think it's just important for us to like acknowledge, especially that the, these issues of like not being taken seriously by medical professionals, having your your pain and your symptoms downplayed um, is only like exacerbated by other sort of intersecting oppressions. So there's been a lot of studies shown, um, so studies done that show um, that even like, you know, trained medical professionals expect that black women are able to tolerate more pain um, than white women or other even other women of color, um, which stems from like really racist pseudoscience that was going on back in like the pre-Civil War era to justify the way that black women were treated under slavery. Um, I think that is also important to acknowledge that like trans and gender non-conforming um, people are also already like not taken seriously by an unfortunately significant portion of like the medical community. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so this is this is an issue that affects women, um, but it doesn't affect all women equally. And, and it also certainly affects gender non-conforming people and, and trans men as well. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think I mean, we can see in the statistics for, you know, say something like maternal mortality, the, the disbelief of pain and the mistreatment of black women in the medical community is literally quantifiable mm -hmm. by the fact that it's it's killing black women. Like the, the, the maternal mortality rate in parts of this country for black women is, you know, not what it should be in a country that has modern medicine. It's it's, it's really, really astounding and, and, and despicable. 
And I know specifically as far as the care of trans and gender nonconforming people, I know that, you know, folks who have endometriosis who don't, who aren't cisgender women, mm-hmm. care is incredibly compounded. For mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's access is incredibly compounded for them because they come into it with the, you know, the stigma and the bias of, you know, the old guard of medicine that already doesn't regard, you know, trans health or um, the health issues of people in the trans community as valid. And then you compound that with the stigma and the disbelief that someone who is trans could present with these symptoms. It's, you know, it's, it's really, really horrific. And then, you know, we'll get into this, but, you know, there's also, you know, a huge, huge financial cost, um, obviously not only to endometriosis care, but to proper access for care for a lot of these issues. Um, mm-hmm. And that is another factor as well that, you know, just illustrates the way that marginalization uh, has a significant impact on the quality of life for people with chronic illness. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know we're going to get a little more into this later, but the issues of regarding endometriosis is really huge for me. Um, I went undiagnosed with pain for over a decade. I would have massive amounts of pain during sex. um, And because I had experienced sexual trauma, doctors sent me to places like pelvic floor physical therapy, which is actually an amazing thing that is also not very used for that specific issue, but it that is besides the point when it comes to um, the endometriosis pain I was having. Um, but it took me having like multiple bursted cysts, literally not being able to ride my bike or sit down for more than a couple of minutes at a time. And finally, a, a woman doctor who believed my pain Um And yeah, we'll get more into it later, but, um, you know, we have in other episodes specifically, yes, address the, the issues that we've been talking about. And also when it comes to weight, um, you know, when, when doctors see someone that they believe to be overweight, they often will misdiagnose them with a weight related issue rather than listening to other things. So, um, just kind of echoing what y'all have been saying. And I guess my question is, do you think that there's a retraining of doctors that needs to happen to kind of overhaul this major issue? Is it a symptom of like the white supremacist, cis focused um, and, you know, a typical body focused uh, world we live in? Or do you see other solutions? I mean, I think... I think there's not one solution. I think specifically with obstetric and gynecological care, you have to acknowledge that the roots of obstetric care and gynecological care are are racist in and of themselves. The you know the the founders of modern gynecology. So we're not talking about you know early midwifery or anything like that. We're talking about modern you know Western gynecology. Um, I think that is still we're still seeing a lot of that, um, and I think. I think there has to be a retraining. I think when I do research into not only endometriosis, but, uh, you know, medical misogyny and patient-centered care, I think what makes all the difference is a betterment of the patient-provider relationship. I think, yes, we absolutely have to retrain doctors. um, And I think you know, specifically with endometriosis, obviously there are things that the vast majority of doctors don't understand about it or, you know, to this day still sort of parrot old information about. Um, But I think when it comes to the nuances of what makes for good care, um, there has to be more 
there has to be less ego, I mm-hmm. think, in the, in the medical profession. And I think there has to be more of an openness to understanding that the patient sitting in front of you is a person just like you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that that involves more conversations about what informed consent needs to look like. It involves conversations about, um, you know, trauma-informed care. You know, you mentioned pelvic floor therapy for sexual violence, which is something that, you know, my physical therapist, who I see for endometriosis, she also specializes in sexual violence. And I didn't even, you know, I have friends who have gone through that and I've said, well, you know, this is an option and it's not something that their doctors have ever mentioned to them, Mm -hmm. you know, so there Mm -hmm. has to be I think there has to be a more open-minded approach to care and a more empathetic approach. Um, And I do think, you know, all of my best providers and all of my providers who my friends have good productive relationships with see them as equals in that, you know, they are an expert on their body the way the doctor is an expert on, you know, the surgery they perform or the medicine they prescribe. Um, And I think that is at least speaking from personal experience, that's where good care comes from mm-hmm. is the doctor respecting the patient and, and, and having those open conversations and not acting like, you know, I mean, we see a lot of dysfunction in the power dynamic between, you know, provider and patient. I did some research on, you know, the, the prescription of transvaginal and pelvic ultrasounds and the difficulty that that presents for patients who either do or don't want pelvic ultrasounds if they haven't been sexually active. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the main issues is that when you're sitting there in in a doctor's office, you feel like you are at a disadvantage structurally in that dynamic. And that should never be the case. And it's on the provider to indicate, you know, you don't have to feel like you're at a disadvantage. Everything that happens in this room is at your discretion. Everything that you, you know, need to know is, is, is going to be prioritized. It's not, you know, the doctor isn't there to tell you, you have to have a pelvic, you know, and a transvaginal, you have to have an internal exam. Those are Mm -hmm. all things that are part of a conversation, not a prescriptive Mm -hmm. experience. So I think, yeah, that's a very long winded answer, but I think more better relationships between patients and providers. And I think that that has to start with the provider acknowledging that they are not, the expert necessarily on what that particular person is feeling. They might be the expert on what to do about it, but they're not there to tell the patient how they feel. Totally. Um, And it almost makes me think about, I don't know if you've, and it's totally okay if you haven't, I don't know if you've looked into the potential differences in care and these issues in different locations. And I'm thinking specifically when it comes to places that have more of a nationalized healthcare system, um, or like a Medicare for all system versus this like hyper capitalized hyper, um, you know, we're one of the only countries in the world that has like these, uh, you know, advertisements for pharmaceuticals and things like that. And I do think that f- at least to me on an intuitive level, although I don't know, I haven't done this research, it feels like that also changes the, the dynamic between the practitioner and patient. Um, and I just didn't know if you had any insight to that as well. So I, I actually, I, I have been wondering about this, especially with the election cycle, because one thing that I know is true very much so of endometriosis, and I'm sure it's the case with other forms of chronic illness, is oftentimes the best care is out of pocket. Mm. Um, and that is really despicable. And it's not the provider's fault. It's the fault of the insurance companies and how they code for certain things. And it's the fault of major medical organizations and how they instruct those coding that coding system to work. Um, and so I actually am not sure. And it's something that I have been looking for information on, especially with the current 
election and, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out, you know, in what situation is my out of network excision specialist going to be covered for someone who can't afford that care um, or covered for me one day if I can't afford it or, you know, my physical therapist going to be covered for it's 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 a very, very complex issue. Um, and I think it probably varies depending on condition. It probably varies depending on, you know, whether it's a matter of medication or surgery. Um, I do have friends overseas um, in the UK who are also really struggling to get proper endometriosis care. So I think it's, it's not as simple as coverage. I think there's, you know, even if you have access to doctors that you might not have access to the doctor you need. Um, But I don't, I think that the way that the insurance system is set up right now, at least speaking specifically to endometriosis is absolutely ridiculous. And it creates a system in which you can only get better if you're a person of means. And that is, um, you know, I don't know enough about the inner workings of insurance companies to speak definitively on that, but I would say that that is really a reflection on how horrible, I mean, I have friends who are arguing with insurance companies right now over $40,000 bills for hysterectomies, you know, in their twenties and, you know, looking at these insurance companies, like you think that somebody would elect to do this because, you know, just, just for fun, like nobody, you know, they're, they're treating certain surgeries, like they're elective because, you know, the coding doesn't recognize them as necessary. It's just, it's, it's, it's really, really fucked up, <laughs> you know? So I think something has to change. I just, I would like better answers on, on, on what that would be. Totally. Um, and, and, yeah. I also think it's just, just to, to add to what you were saying, it's worth noting that, and like, I'm also like Laura, not and by any means an expert in, in some of these issues, but um, that like the, the example of the UK, I know one of the issues that we've talked about and we talked about with um, our friend Rosie, who was on our episode, um, our Patreon episode about the recent election in the UK. One of the things that left advocates or activists are really um, advocating for in the UK right now is um, the sort of refunding of the NHS, which has gotten increasingly privatized, which has become in a lot of ways um, sort of a two-tiered system where there's private health care that you frequently have to pay out of pocket for. Um, and then the NHS, which is um, basically because of austerity politics, because of um, the privatization, reprivatization of the medical system there, um, creating a lot of problems where a lot of really significant but, you know, um, the kinds of surgeries that, that American insurance companies call elective when obviously they aren't mm-hmm. um, ends up being stuff that people have to pay for in a way that they shouldn't under that system as well. Um, so, the, I mean, there's there's a lot of lessons that you can draw from that, including that, like, when we win things, we can never for a second, like, let ourselves get comfortable. Um, but uh, also know that, like, even if we get something like, you know, Medicare for all, I hope it happens, but that we have to be really vigilant um, as people who are paying attention to stuff like this um, to make sure that um, what we really get is like is full coverage and and not, um, you know, not vampiric, not uh, sort of halfway, you know, nothing, nothing less than like full coverage um, is what we should be demanding. So just throwing that one out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I did just want to add, um, as I bring up somewhat often, I did live in Denmark and I was on their healthcare system. Um, and everything was covered, but 
you're assigned a doctor based on where you live. And the doctor, my primary doctor, was very creepy, mm. um, to say the least, about him. And so oh, you have no. to go to that person to be sit. You have to go to your primary to get to go to any sort of specialist. So I had to go to him and request a gyno um, or whatever else I needed. And obviously, this is not to say anything against Medicare for All systems, but in what we're talking about, I think it's important to. Sorry, the cat that I'm sitting is making noises. You're fine. Can you stop? You're being rude. You're a man cat. Okay, stop it. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, it's important to make sure that when we're talking about Medicare for All systems, that it's still important to make sure that there's like a feminist lens to that, which is not forcing someone to go to a creepy male doctor for everything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think. So I live in Massachusetts and we have, um, obviously we have, you know, a good healthcare system in the state that you can opt into. And one of the issues for me when I graduated law school was I went onto the mass health system while I was getting ready to sit for the bar and not having, you know, the kind of study employment I would need to, you know, enter a group health plan. And it is fantastic coverage if I'm seeing a doctor in state, but if I need to go out of state where my excision specialist is, I don't get coverage at all. And so I think, Ooh. you know, that is, you know, there's, I think I would love to have conversations like in a perfect world. I would love for everybody running to talk about, you know, to talk to folks with chronic illness who have to see specialists, because obviously like this is, this is a multifaceted problem. So there's insurance access, but then, if you have coverage, like you said, like it doesn't like coverage is only as good as the doctors it allows you access to. Mm, right. So yeah. if you can only access like in Massachusetts, there are a couple of excision specialists who are covered by insurance and the wait time for them is, you know, six to eight months and it's a progressive okay. disease. So what you have is, you know, folks who cannot afford to travel out of state to see an excision specialist waiting, you know, some, you know, a year and a half, half a year, eight months to see someone and you have people who can afford to move out of state or travel out of state, you know, being seen in a matter of weeks, um, you know, and that, that is really disconcerting, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, what you, I think what you say about the, the situation in Denmark really resonates because I think that's what I see with a lot of friends who even live in states like Massachusetts, where they do have good healthcare coverage. Sometimes the best doctors are still not operating in those networks. And I think we need to have conversations about how can we, how can we make the system work so that there is patient autonomy in it? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sure folks who are much smarter on these issues than I am have answers to that. Um, it would just be really good, I think, to have conversations about that specifically as it impacts the chronic illness community. For sure. Yeah. So I think um, on that note, which is great to switch gears. Um, so <laughs> one thing that I really love about your writing is that it always feels super relatable to me, probably because I've gone through a lot of similar things. So mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, it's easy to like see myself in that. And one of your articles that I really wanted to talk about is when you wrote about um, chronic illness and bo body positivity. Um, and I both, it was the first time I heard someone talking about the relationship between having chronic pain and like a lot of clothing being uncomfortable, uh, which is something that I've, been dealing with for sure and like feeling most comfortable when I'm just like I'm gonna wear my sweats but also feeling super frumpy um and like not as good about myself mm -hmm. and I think um especially when I do like 
dress up, it becomes more of a reason for people to say like the cliche, but you don't look sick, like you look fine, which is something that I've heard a lot, especially as someone who's been dealing with this, like as a young woman. And Mm -hmm. most of the time, like it's not visible that I am feeling sick, except for times where let's say I bring a heating pad to a party and sit on the couch with it, which I have done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and bless my friends none of them were like Zoe what the fuck are you doing they were all just like okay Zoe's there with a heating pad <laughs> we'll go talk to her um but I did have a doctor once say to me and this was a specialist I was seeing for Lyme several years ago and she was like I know that it feels horrible that you feel trapped in your own body and it's not doing what you want it to do and that really stuck with me um which I think speaks to kind of the lack of control that people can feel with chronic illness where it's like my body is not listening to me. Um, not, you know, kind of doing the things I wanted to do. I can't do the things that I want to do. And one way to feel that sort of sense of control over your body is like over fashion and makeup or kind of whatever things like make you feel good. So that was kind of a long winded explanation, but going back to your article, I really loved that you wrote that no, um, that you no longer wait for like this perfect occasion to wear certain things or get dressed up because being able to make it through the day is a special occasion, uh, which I think is like a super powerful thing for people with chronic illness. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just wanted to uh, talk a little more about how you see that relationship between chronic illness and body positivity. Yeah. I mean, I think for me it was when I, so I got I had my, I mean, I was not feeling well for a while, but I, when I got diagnosed, I was in my first year of law school and my health started declining really fast after that. And the first thing was, you know, a really concrete thing was that my body changed. Um, you know, I was gaining weight cause I was on really heavy doses of hormones that were based, that were giving me like premenopausal symptoms. So I was, my face was widening and there were things about my body that were changing that, in a, I, I, I really resented, but in a weird way, I was so indifferent to them at the same time because everything else that was going on with my body felt so much heavier. Um, and then when I started to get a little bit of relief, I, it started to, I was able to process what it meant that my appearance was changing. Um, and my appearance also was still in flux. When I went off of my hormones and got more surgery, I lost weight and I went back to looking the way I did before I got, you know, before I got really sick. And it was really hard for me because I was always someone that, as I think a lot of people, you know, are, I was someone that, you know, struggled to feel like I liked the body I was in. And when I was in college, I did like, you know, super diets to get super skinny. And then when my body changed in law school, because I got sick, I was like, wait a minute, like, what is this? What's going on? And it wasn't, you know, and I should say that, like, I come from a position of being like a white, relatively thin woman who, you know, for a lot of people, like, these were not things that like, it's not a form of marginalization that I had experienced, you know, to any sort of significant degree. Um, but I, it's still, the way that I looked was still heavy to me. It's still not heavy in my weight, but like heavy in the, the, the emotional weight of it was, you know, it mattered to me. And yeah, what you say is true is that, you know, when everything feels really out of control in your body, sometimes you do just want to look in the mirror and at least see that the outside of you is something you can feel happy about. 
Um, and that's yeah. really hard when clothes are uncomfortable or you're too tired to put your makeup on. Um, you know, I remember like when I was recovering from one of my surgeries, like my sister would sit every day and put my makeup on for me because I was too tired, but I needed to oh. feel, I needed to feel good. And I, and I think especially as a woman, um, there are a lot of notions about vanity and frivolity that come with, you know, wanting to look good and, and wanting to feel good. And I think it's hard to sort of mentally get over those and, and say to yourself, like, yeah, it's okay that this matters to me. And it's okay if I want to feel good about the way I look. Um, and, you know, that's really, I think that's hard to balance. It's, it's hard to not put too much stock in how you look, especially when there are days when you get up and you are in too much pain to put your makeup on, or you are in too much pain to get out of sweats and to know that it doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't change your worth. Um, but then to still celebrate the days that you can get up and, you know, wear whatever you want, um, and, and feel good about your body. Um, you know, I, I, I'm someone who likes to take a lot of selfies. I'm someone who likes mm -hmm. to celebrate the way that my body looks now. Um, and I think that has been really cathartic for me. One of my really, really good friends, um, who's an editor at BuzzFeed, Lara Parker, she takes a lot of really beautiful pictures of her body and talks a lot about that on her social media as well. Um, you know, like whether you have scars or heating pad burns or whatever it is, you know, there's always something that makes you feel, uh, like your body has been marred by what you've been through. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't celebrate it, uh, and you can't enjoy what others might see as frivolous things like makeup or jewelry or hair or whatever it is that makes you feel good. Um, you know, I think, I think it's really important. At least it has been for me. Um, and I think, you know, everybody's different and I wouldn't ever judge somebody for feeling like that isn't important to them. But I also think it's, you know, like you said, like it's, it's really hard too, especially when people are like, well, you don't look sick and you're like, right, but <laughs> that's not how this works. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. it just isn't. And, and that's really sick too. I, yeah. I hate that. I hate, I went to something recently at like a family party and I got dressed nice and somebody in my family was like my extended family who, not my immediate family, who was fantastic, but my extended family was like, well, you look great. And I went home and I took a painkiller cause I was in so much pain and I was like, mm -hmm. that's not, you know, and the other thing is when you are feeling like this for so long, you train the way you look on the outside, you know, you get yeah. used to it. And, you know, like if I'm sitting in my kitchen, my mother sees pain on my face, but anybody else wouldn't, um, you know, it's not apparent. It's not easy to see. And so, yeah, that's true too. It's really hard sometimes when you want to dress up and then you worry, like, is someone going to use this as a way to discount how I actually feel? Um, and that, that's just, you know, that's just really shitty and it's, it's incredibly unfair. And it's, you know, it's hard, especially in that moment, I think to push back and be like, well, no, actually I feel like shit, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, the whole, like, you don't look sick thing can be, um, really real and like really like hard to deal with. Um, I think, um, Zoe and I were talking actually before this episode about different sort of like kinds of chronic illnesses, including mental health problems, which obviously don't always physically manifest themselves in ways that are obvious to observers. Um, and I know for me, I have a, uh, congenital degenerative connective tissue disorder, which is a fancy way of saying my connective tissues, especially my joints are just like total shit and are only getting worse. Um, I'm, I'm 27, but I can already feel myself losing mobility, which is really scary. Um, 
there's like a lot that I can't do. I'm not supposed to run or do high impact sports or play tennis or soccer or anything where I would have to make like sudden turns because I can literally throw my knee out doing that. And I have on (laughs) multiple occasions. Um, And for the most part, like that's been okay. I don't have to play basketball. I don't have to try kickboxing. I hate running anyway. So it's actually really great to have an excuse not to do it. Um, But like what really sucks is that as I'm getting older, or at least as I'm like getting into my late 20s, normal stuff is just like starting to be really hard sometimes. Um, Like I'll get stabbing pains in my knee just walking to the grocery store. I had to skip (laughs) Zoe's partner's birthday party. LOL. Hardship. uh, Mm -hmm. It was for me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Peter. Again, I'm sorry I missed it. Um, Because my (laughs) My knee swelled up to like twice its normal size after just like a really minor injury. What wouldn't even be an injury for most people, just kind of like stepping funny. Um, And my knee got really swollen and I couldn't put weight on it. Um, It's like, I don't know, a month ago. Um, So it's like even even on like bad day or on bad days, even something as simple as like just standing for like 20 minutes on the subway can be really painful. Um, And I know that I don't. I don't look like a person who needs a seat um, because I'm young and I, I am really healthy in a lot of ways and I look healthy. And also because, and I think this goes to your point, Caroline, because I know how to do the things that make me look less like I'm in pain. You know, mm. I don't wear heels anymore um, because if I did, I would never be able to stand. Uh, and so part of the reason that I like don't look sick or I don't look like I'm in pain is because I'm doing everything I can to like mitigate those issues. Um, yeah. But like being on the subway, I feel bad sitting down sometimes, even if my knee is like about to give out because I know that literally no one around me can tell that I have this problem unless I'm like wearing a knee brace. Um, and I even feel weird talking about it here um, because a lot of people don't know this about me or like, don't know how bad the problem can get, can get. And like, this is, it's silly, but I I feel embarrassed because there's so much like quote unquote normal stuff that I can't do sometimes. Um, and yeah, like a lot of, a lot of chronic illness can be invisible. And sometimes I think that can make it even like harder um, harder to deal with it because everybody sort of expects certain things out of you that you're not necessarily able to give. Yeah, I think that's super relatable, especially what you were talking about with like the subway seats and like handicapped seats. Cause for me, I've in the past year or two gained back some weight and it's gotten better. But when I was like having a lot more symptoms, I lost a lot of weight and had really low blood pressure. And so I got lightheaded super easily Like, I would just be standing up and then suddenly, like, get that, like, black, like, polka dotty kind of vision and just be like, oh, my God, I have to sit down right now or I'm, like, about to pass out. Right. Um, And, and yeah, it feels weird as, like, a young, like, healthy-looking person to be like, hey, I really need this seat or something like that. Yeah. I think um, that even more, like, quote-unquote, I mean, I mean, they are more extreme, but also, like, you know, everyone's pain and existence is different. But 
um, chronic illnesses can be invisible too. So I have a few different friends that unfortunately have lupus and it's not like they walk around with a sign that says lupus over their heads, but they do need to be really cautious in the sunlight and can have flares that leave them feeling really scared and nervous. And I think it almost brings up a different point. Like why do we assume ability and health over disability? I don't know if that question makes sense, but it's almost like if people didn't assume everyone was perfectly healthy and able, then we wouldn't have to consistently come out to people over and over again with these things. I think too, um, you know, there's, I think when you're young, it's really difficult. Um, like the story I always tell is, uh, my most recent surgery, I had to have my bladder reconstructed. So I had to stay overnight in the hospital and I went home with a catheter And when I left on the morning uh, at the hospital um, at a facility where I've had surgery before and everybody is incredibly amazing, I just happened to pull a bad straw and get a nurse who was like, do you want a wheelchair or do you want to walk out of the hospital? And I was like, I want a wheelchair (laughs) because I, you know, was in surgery for four and a half hours yesterday and I am on fentanyl. So yeah, I'd like a wheelchair. And she looked at me and she said, well, you're young and you're healthy, so let's have you walk. And oh. I was like, I'm peeing in a bag, so maybe <laughs> maybe oh get God. me a chair. And she had me walk. And to this day, I'm really mad about it because in that position, like, that's the other thing that I think is hard to, to conceptualize is in that moment when someone makes that expectation of you, when someone makes that mm-hmm. passing comment you're compromised. And it's, you know, if I'm having a really good day and I'm not having pain and I'm not like, I have all my energy and someone comes back at me with a line about anything that I find offensive, you know, about fertility or pain or this, I can get right back at them and be like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, that's a really insensitive thing. But when you're down and you're like in that position, you're in a hospital bed, you're not going to look at the nurse and be like, you bitch, like, give me a fucking. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Totally. (laughs) You know, like, you're not going to say that you're going to be like, okay, well, I can't go to the bathroom by myself. So I guess I'm listening to you. And yeah, you know, that's really hard uh, Mm -hmm. is, is, you know, when we're in these positions, like when we need help the most, and when we need to be able to speak up for ourselves the most are often when we feel most compromised. Like I had to go through um, accommodations requests for my time in law school. And it was a nightmare. It was truly a nightmare. And there were so many things that I learned along the way that, yeah, four years in, I was able to advocate for myself and say, no, actually, you legally owe me this. Like, I'm legally entitled to this. Right. But at the beginning, I was taking more painkillers and then I, you know, I couldn't see straight from pain. I was exhausted. And I had, you know, these people who were supposed to be taking care of me telling me these are your options. And I didn't have the energy to self-advocate, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think that that's a huge part of it, too, is it's hard to not be hard on yourself. Like to this day, I'm like, you should have said something to that nurse, Caroline. Cause like that was so uncalled for. And, but the truth of the matter is like, what was I going to say? You know, it was, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's really hard. Um, I think when you're young and you appear, you know, like I had a, a, a therapist who used to be like, well, your coloring is great. And I was like, right. I have blush on like, I'm not, <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so much more nuanced than I think people totally. want to admit. And I, I think part of it is that some people are just ignorant. And I think that they think that you can always see disability or illness. Um, and I think another part of it is that people are genuinely scared of the understanding that you don't have to look sick to be really, really sick because that 
if they were to accept that, they have to accept that like doing certain things to maintain their appearance or wellness or whatever, you know, it's not going to be the answer. Um, you know, some of us just pull a shit straw and it doesn't matter how much we take care of our bodies. It's, that's just how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a harsh reality for a lot of people to understand. And, you know, that's, I think part of why people don't like to accept that you can look lots of different ways and that doesn't reflect your health at all. Um, you know, cause it's out of your control. I think a lot of people don't want to relinquish that sense of control. And so they project that onto us by minimizing how we're actually feeling. Yeah, that's really, really well said. Um, I think if, and, um, the, the story that you just told about the really terrible nurse. First of all, I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> awful. It sounds like all those nurses on TikTok that yeah. keep popping up being like, um, don't come to the ER if you're feeling sick. Go to your primary <laughs> care doctor. And it's like, bitch, some of us can't afford to do that. Anyway, uh. um, that aside, uh, I is the, the story that you just told from the same um, sort of uh, anecdote that you wrote about in the Washington Post? Or is that a sort of a totally different, like, sur post-surgery? Um, oh, well, like, so that was, actually, yeah, that was, it was the same surgery. So I yeah. had three surgeries. Um, the first was an ablation cautery surgery, which is what most doctors who treat endometriosis uh, like regular OBGYNs will do where they burn the endometriosis lesions, but it doesn't work. Um, and the second two were proper excision surgeries with a specialist, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But yes, the surgery that I went home with the catheter with the nurse that said that to me was the same <laughs> same story I wrote about uh, dating through in the Washington Post. Yeah, and I, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about that piece, which is really, really good. I think everybody who's listening to this should definitely check it out. Um, and it, I thought you raised like a really interesting question about like how to talk to people in your life about chronic illness, like how much to explain, um, you know, what to share, when to share it. And like, I know that you've talked to, like, obviously you've had your experiences, but you've talked to a lot of people as well and interviewed people about navigating those issues. Um, so I was wondering if you like might share a little bit about how you and, and how other people um, think about navigating these issues, whether with friends or strangers or romantic partners? Yeah, so I think it's definitely something that I am still trying to figure out what works best for me, because I think it's not only a really personal thing, um, it's also really individualized with the person mm -hmm. that you're talking to. Um, you know, and I saw somebody recently say something uh, like on like a like a sex education Instagram. Somebody was like, you know, how do you handle dating if you have a chronic illness? And the person was like, just radical honesty. And I think mm -hmm. there's value in that. But I don't think it's a one size fits all. Um, yeah. You know, I have partners who know absolutely everything that's going on with me. I have partners and have had partners in the past who have been had no idea. And I think that. uh there's a value, I think, in, in, in wanting to share that, but there's bringing someone into that place is it's a comfort because mm -hmm. then, you know, when you're with that person, there's a safety to it. Um, you know, if, if they care about you and if they, if they treat you like shit because of it, then you have your answer on what kind of person that person is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's something I talk about in the Washington post piece was, mm -hmm you know, a frustration that disclosing what was going on to the person I was seeing, I think was, was detrimental to our relationship at the time. And, 
you know, it was early on, so it just was too much for him. Um, and everybody after the fact was like, well, you know, that's good. I mean, you figured out what kind of person he was. Um, and I think it's, that's true, but I think it's also okay to be frustrated that we have to be forced to, to go through that and not just kind of date like people who don't have to have these really heavy conversations with people that we just want to have like a couple of good fucks with. Um, (laughs) you know, I think, um, I think that there are times when I have not told, uh, especially casual partners what's been going on because, it also allows me a space in my life that isn't touched by what's going on. And, and, and I, I don't know, I relish that like privacy and, and kind of being a person who isn't defined by this because when I was defined, when I was diagnosed in my first year of law school, like everybody who knows me from school, everybody who knows me through my writing, like it's a big part of who I am. And so if I can date a guy who's like not on Twitter mm-hmm. and, you know, have him not see me through that lens, it's, there's something really fun about it. And I think, you know, then if that person becomes a good person and and those conversations happen, they happen. Um, but I think it's okay to not feel like you owe somebody that explanation. I think it's okay to live. If you, if you're not ready to tell somebody, if you don't want to tell somebody, you don't owe anybody an explanation of what's going on with your body. If you want to, and I'm someone who, yes, I don't tell a lot of like, you know, casual partners, but I'm also someone who's obviously very open. I write about this stuff. I talk about it with all my friends and my family, Um, and you know, a lot of people that I date or have sex with do obviously know about it. And I think that that has made me, uh, it's definitely changed. I think my approach to dating and sex and not in, I don't want to say like unequivocally for the better, but it's made me less apologetic Mm -hmm. about, you know, pleasure and things that I want in a relationship and things that I want from sex and the person that I am, um, you know, I think losing control of your body in a health sense emphasizes how important having control of your body and other parts of your life is. And I think that's been really good for me because I've been able to say, you know, fuck it to a lot of the pressures to be, you know, to appear a certain way about sex or to be quiet or, you know, all that bullshit that we put, I think, especially on women about, you know, even after we're older and we're having sex, like purity standards, like that all remains, you know, it's, it's all still there. And I think, when I lost control of my health, it was, you know, I was like, why am I pretending I don't like X, Y, or Z? Why am I pretending I don't like sex when, you know, I have to go to the doctor every week and open my legs and and talk about these things? Like, can't some of this be mine? Um, And I think in that regard, you know, I do talk about endometriosis to people I'm sleeping with or people I'm dating. um, And I do so in an unapologetic way when I feel like that's a person I want to talk to about it. Um, you know, and that's changed a lot for me. You know, when I told that partner that I wrote about in the Washington Post, I was really quick to be like, I promise, you know, we can still have sex. and I promise we can do all these things and, and making a lot of apologies for it. Um, you know, and, and now I'm just like, Hey, like, you know, I'm having a bad day. Like, let's do something else. Or I'm having, you know, this, let's do that. Like, it's made me less apologetic in my communication for sure. Um, But I think, yeah, I think the short answer is just look at the person in front of you and don't feel like you have to prescribe to a set of rules about how to talk to people about your chronic illness. If you run into your fifth grade teacher in the grocery store and you don't feel like having that conversation, you don't have to have that conversation. And, you know, if you're dating someone and you feel like you want to have that closeness with them, then tell them. But if you're dating someone and you feel like you're not ready to, then, you know, it's your health. It's it's private. It's you know, it's intimate and disclosure is a really intimate thing. Um, so I think, 
Yeah, I don't think radical honesty is a universal answer. I think it's definitely important if it's someone that you care about and you want really to care about you. But I don't think that we need to be putting pressure on ourselves to bear our souls when, you know, dating isn't really, at least in the early stages, like that's not, nobody's telling every, all their partners, everything about them anyway. So, you know, if there are parts of you that you aren't ready to share or you don't want to share, um, you know, that's okay too. Uh, but I do think, and it is true, is that if a partner doesn't accept that part of you, then they're a fuckhead and you mm -hmm. should just get rid of them. And I think everybody <laughs> I know who's dating with a chronic illness <laughs> has been through it where they're dating a guy and then they get sort of weird about it or dating whoever. I just, I date men and I have totally. ha heard more horror stories about this with men. Yes. So that's, um, <laughs> Can confirm you know. with the, dipping my toe into all the gender pools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They tend to be the shittiest. Yeah. Um, you know, about this kind of thing. Uh, you know, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's okay to not tell somebody if you do tell someone and they respond in a way that doesn't make you comfortable, then lose them because they're never going to catch up. Um, you know, if they're insensitive, if they're not empathetic, if they complain to you about how much sleep they haven't gotten the night before and, you know, and you are supposed to feel empathetic about that, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, I think, you know, that can be really telling and it sucks totally. that we have that added filter that we even have to consider that. But, um, you know, there's the, there are a couple of studies and I can't, I, I saw an article about it this week about how women who get sick, their husbands leave. And when their husbands get sick, women don't leave. Like statistically, you're more likely to be left as a sick woman than as a <laughs> sick man. And that's really fucked up. And yeah. it's just, it's fucked up, but it's also validating that the experiences we're having are real and that like, m like, you know, cis men are actually treating us like shit about this stuff a lot of the times. Um, but I think it's just even more reason to be less apologetic about it because um, it doesn't make you a burden. It doesn't make you a worse partner. It doesn't make you worse at sex. It doesn't make you less attentive or less loving or anything, um, you know, and life comes for everybody. So like everybody's going to have something that they're going to have to go through at some point in their life and they're going to have to support a partner through it. Um, and, you know, if you're with someone who's not good at that, then I guess, you know, people are right. It is good to figure that out sooner rather than later. Um, but that doesn't mitigate the fact that it still sucks, you know, a lot of the time. And it's really painful to feel that way. Ooh, for sure. <laughs> I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. So um, I thought we could kind of end our conversation talking more deep dive about endometriosis sp specifically. Uh, you and I both share this uh, about us. Um, and just kind of going off of what you were just saying, um, before I was diagnosed, I was primarily in long-term relationships with men. Um, and with one of them, uh, you know, it was toward, it was towards closer to when I was diagnosed and penetrative sex became extraordinarily painful for me. Um, but I also like, I felt like I didn't have the tools to talk about it because I was undiagnosed. I didn't really know what to say. And I think there's this um, kind of obligation that you are speaking to when you don't have the confidence or the tools or like you just don't really know how to describe what's happening because you're confused about it um, because it is something you want to do. But it's like, yeah, I, I just think there's so much about what you said that just becomes so, so complicated. Um, 
especially when it comes to a, for me at least it feels like it specifically comes into play with a, a chronic illness that is so tied to sex for people um and so I thought that, you know, for our listeners that don't know, uh, that we could speak to what endometriosis is. Um, Even leading up to this interview and as someone who has endometriosis, I had it wrong. I had an old theory, uh, which was told to me by my doctor, who is a quote unquote endometriosis expert, um, which just speaks to how much misinformation there is about this. So, yeah, if you want to explain kind of like what the illness is um, and then we can kind of go into a little bit more about it. Yeah, so so endometriosis is um, the presence of tissue similar to, but not the same as endometrial tissue that uh, is present inside the uterus, growing elsewhere in the body. Um, and it's most commonly found in the pelvic cavity, um, on the reproductive organs, but also on the bladder, the bowel, um, colon, any organs in that area, as well as like the soft tissues, like your your uh, pelvic sidewalls, your cul-de-sac. Um, but it also can be found um, up as high as your thoracic region, on your diaphragm. In rare cases, it can be found on your lungs. Um, mm-hmm. And and really, uh, any not any part of your body, but it can be found in a lot of parts of your body that are outside of your pelvic cavity um, on your organs. And the traditional way, thinking on endometriosis, which is called Samson's theory, is that it's the result of retrograde menstruation where um, your menstruation basically like flushes back upwards mm-hmm. and that creates the lesions and then they bleed and, um, you know, they bleed and shed the way a uterine lining during a period does. Uh, what researchers have found more recently is that endometrial lesions are present in some fetuses. And so um, it's thought to be a genetic condition. You're six times more likely to have it if you have a mother or sister who has it. Um, And so it's thought to be something that's actually present at birth and potentially not the result of retrograde menstruation. Um, And the fact that we don't even fucking know technically like 100 percent sure like what causes this, I think, speaks to what a shit show trying to get care for it is. Um, And it's also part of the reason that care is so poor. So, you know, typically if you go to your regular OBGYN and you present with endometriosis symptoms, which can be, to be clear, anything from painful and heavy periods, pain after sex, chronic fatigue, leg pain, mm-hmm. back pain, um, gastrointestinal issues, constipation, diarrhea, vomiting. It doesn't, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, it's bad periods. And that's that's an oversimplification. And it also totally. leaves a lot of people in the symptom pool out because um, I think a lot of people present with what physicians would consider atypical symptoms, um, you know, or something like pain with sex, which like you're told from the time you're like born, there's a woman sex is supposed to hurt anyway. So exactly. that's fucked, you know, Ugh. so like I spent all of college being like, well, I'm bleeding after sex. Cause it was just like, you know, a little too much. And oh then God. somebody was like, no, you're not supposed to bleed after sex. And I was like, Oh, okay. And now I don't bleed after sex, which is really revelatory. Right. Um, God. <laughs> you know, Ugh. And, and um, I think people, even even if we just think about the painful periods things, we're also told that. We're also told right, exactly. at a young age that periods are painful. A lot of people have cramps, but no one's talking about all of those measures. But of course, there's all of these other factors that you're talking about. But yeah, sorry. I'm just like, cannot clap in the background enough of what you're saying. <laughs> well, it's, you know, how are we supposed to recognize it when we're told, you know, literally, you know, that it's normal. And exactly. You know, and so the typically if you go to your regular OBGYN, what they, you know, what the average 
gynecologist will prescribe for endometriosis is hormone suppression, so birth control to stop your periods, a high dose of progestin, because endometriosis is considered to be estrogen-respondent, meaning that it flares and grows with the presence of estrogen. So if you're put on a progestin-heavy birth control or an all-progestin birth control, it's thought to suppress the symptoms at least. And then something called ablation surgery, where they go in and they cauterize the lesions. Um, but the issue with that is that endometriosis can continue to grow in a body without a uterus, in a body without natural estrogen hormones, because the lesions themselves grow their own estrogen supply. Um, so that's why, even if you're on something like hormone suppression, endometriosis lesions will continue to grow. Um, and the other issue is when you do something like ablation surgery, what they do is they just cauterize the top of the lesion, but endometriosis lesions are actually like an iceberg. They, the, mm. the, the, the most of them is under the surface of the skin. Um, that's where like the, the, the roots and the nerve endings are. And so what's needed is something called excision surgery, where there are a handful of specialists in the country who can perform it correctly. Um, and you go in, a doctor will go in and they actually, will remove the affected tissue um, with a relatively wide margin so as to get anything related or connected. And that has the highest success rate of um, not having a recurrence. So you see very high recurrence rates with ablation. You see lower recurrence rates with um, excision. If the recurrence mm -hmm. is possible, it's far less likely with true excision. Um, and of course, this is distinct, and obviously this is different, but it's distinct from adenomyosis, which is endometriosis present in the lining of the uterus, um, for which the only definitive cure is a hysterectomy. Mm. Um, but it's important to say that a hysterectomy is not ever a cure for endometriosis. It yeah. is, you know, it's really, I think what's one of the saddest things for me about having been part of the endometriosis community for a couple of years now is I'll talk to older patients who have been through this and have gone through it at a time where there was less available information. And their doctors told them to have hysterectomies for it. And they did. And it didn't do anything. And it's just really heartbreaking to me that we basically treated these patients like guinea pigs for, you know, however long. And, you know, they lost a part of them that was really, you know, important to them and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and a really important part, I think, socially and politically of, you know, who, you know, people who can reproduce are. It's a really heavy thing to have those conversations. Um, so with true excision surgery, you do see uh, pretty high rates of not no recurring disease. Um, but then after that, you know, there's a lot of damage that happens to the body during the time that endometriosis is growing in your system. So it's common, if not almost unexceptional, for patients to need pelvic floor physical therapy, um, honestly, behavioral therapy. Like I went to therapy for a while for PTSD after my surgeries mm -hmm. because the amount of pain you endure the body remembers that it holds on to that. Um, it's not uncommon for patients to suffer long-term nerve damage um, or other forms of muscular and nerve issues as the result of long-term disease, um, as well as organ damage. Um, for me, at my second excision surgery, um, I've had two excision surgeries, which is not very common. Um, my first was very quickly after my first ablation surgery, which was completely botched and terrible. And afterward, I went on very heavy hormone suppressions, which did nothing except make me feel awful. Yeah. Um, and so after my second excision surgery, I had um, disease that had eaten away at my bladder. My bladder and my uterus had fused together. So there was um, organ damage present um, from the disease itself, which was really scary. Um, and you know, now I'm at a place where 
I would say since my excision surgeries, my pain has drastically, drastically improved. Mm-hmm. Um, I still deal with midline pain, which is um, likely my uterus, um, for which I have an IUD to stop my cycles. Um, Same. <laughs> yep. And I find it really, really helpful. And mm-hmm. I do so with the understanding that it's not treating disease. It's treating, you know, the growth. either. Yeah, it's treating the the basically just like a fucked up system that's been fucked up by disease for years. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, possibly adenomyosis, uh, which is distinct. I see a specialist out of state. I see a specialist in Maine. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but part of the problem with endometriosis is excision surgery and ablation surgery are coded by insurance providers as the same surgery or as the same tier of surgery. So they reimburse a surgeon who performs excision surgery, which is one of the hardest gynecological procedures to perform, the same as someone who performs ablation, which is relatively simple. It's a half hour, 45 minute procedure. Oftentimes um, an excision is four, five, six. I know folks who have been in for eight hours. Um, I have friends who have struggled to find an excision specialist have been referred instead to cancer specialists because it's most, most closely comparable Mm -hmm. to what cancer specialists do. Um, So what ends up happening is specialists who perform excision operate out of network, whereas specialists who perform ablation, which is ineffective, operate in network. So if you have 10 grand lying around, you can go to a great doctor. And oftentimes it's more than that. I have friends who are paying 30, 40 grand to see an excision specialist, not including cost of travel, flight, hotel. Um, Whereas that is, you know, completely out of reach for a massive portion of the population. Um, So that is the bottom line on this disease is that whether or not you see relief from it depends on how much money you have, um, you know, point blank. Totally. And so you wrote an entire um, article a bit about this. Um, I know we're starting to run out of time, but uh, I know this is very important. Um, Can you talk a little bit, and you already have started to, about the lack of access people have to proper endometriosis care? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always tell people, um, if you're looking for an excision specialist, the easiest place to find one is um, in the Nancy's Nook Facebook group. There's a list of vetted doctors, um, and that's where I found my specialist. I see Martin Robbins in Maine, um, who's fantastic, Uh, but... Yeah, the problem is that excision surgery is not recognized by insurance providers as a distinct procedure. So even um, when I had my surgeries, we had the hospital fees were covered under my dad's group plan. Um, So that was the bulk of the cost. It was probably close to 30,000 for my overnight stay at my second surgery. But the surgeon himself uh, does not work with insurance companies because of the way they code. So, you know, it's Everything I've heard, everything from you know three or four thousand dollars to see an excision specialist to ten to fifteen out of pocket, um, and then of course for folks who don't have group coverage or good PPO insurance or whatever it is that would cover hospital insurance, you have to cover the cost of the hospital stay, which is you know fucking insane and ridiculous and just out of this world. Um, so yeah, the problem is is that not only is it a cost thing. It is the fact that so few surgeons actually perform excision surgery. So like I said, it's one of the hardest gynecological procedures to perform, and it's not something that you learn in the regular obstetrics and gynecology curriculum. Like my surgeon, who I see as most surgeons with excision, they train with an excision specialist. It's, it's added. It's more work. Um, you know, but a lot of these doctors are constantly updating their treatment, updating, you know, their skill set. 
um, and doing research, whereas, you know, a regular OBGYN might not be going that extra mile. And I wish I could speak to what, <laughs> what could improve in the healthcare curriculum that would make that not the case. I think it probably would start with, um, you know, major medical organizations like the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recognizing excision surgery as the gold standard in care, which at present they don't. They still list ablation and hormones along with excision as treatment for endometriosis. Mm. Um, you know, so that's an issue too. Is it, it you know, coming from the top, um, you know, the instructive side of things is, is not where it needs to be. Um, and doctors also need to do more. Uh, they need to be working harder for patients. Um and more doctors need to be working harder for patients. You know, when I talk to my doctor all the time about my first surgery and I'm like, why did he do that if he knew it didn't work? And he was like, it's just, you know, they know it doesn't, they have to know it doesn't work. That's just how it is. And I think that's the reality of being a, a, a female patient of doctors, of being someone who's trans or nonconforming or any sort of marginalized patient. You're going to come across doctors who just simply don't want to put the work in for you. Um, and I think endometriosis is a really good illustration of how that presents um, in, in, you know, in, in a really concrete way. Um, totally. So it's a cost barrier. It's, it's a location barrier. I mean, my doctor's in Maine, and that's one of the closest. I'm in Massachusetts, so it's about two hours for me. And that's one of the closest. Most of my friends fly to see their excision specialists, um, you know, or they travel a couple hours at least. Um, and that's the other part of it is you know, who can take time off to fly to another state to have surgery and then fly back. Or um, it's, it's, it's just, it's really grim. Um, access is, is, is really poor, uh, especially if you don't have uh, financial means. Um, yeah, totally. I, um, I'm actually like very, I'm, I'm interested in all of this and also like curious because I, um, I had three golf ball size lesions removed from my pelvic floor in the fall of 2016. Um, and it was through like a laroscopic uh, robotic kind of removal surgery. Um, and I, I didn't really realize, I guess, the different access, the different types of it. But it was it was my OBGYN and also took four hours. So now I'm looking back like I don't actually know. I don't know what one I had done um, because they just would talk about it as a laroscopy, not like these other terms that you're using, you know. And that's really, really common. To be clear, when I had my first surgery, I had it at a major hospital here in Boston and um, I was told at the at the outset, like, you're going to get the best, you know, you're going to get the best methodology. And, um, you know, and then when I had my excision surgery, I couldn't believe how different it was. Like, I realized I didn't get any pathology report for my first surgery. I didn't have anything to see that I had like a clinical diagnosis. There was no sample taken. And I mean, there, if you have questions, you can, I like, I, at the time was like so angry at the first surgeon. I didn't even bother to engage with him, but I, I do know a lot of folks who, I mean, I see that all the time in our Facebook support groups of people being like, I had this surgery and I'm not really sure. And they go back to their physician and they have a conversation about it. And a lot of times they have had excision um, and it just hasn't been part of the conversation. Uh, but a lot of times they haven't. And uh, it's, especially if you're still experiencing symptoms, I think a lot of patients realize like I did, I thought I had a good surgery and then I started getting really bad pain, you know, a couple of months later, not even. And I was mm. like, wait a minute, I don't think I had what I was told I had. 
Um, that hasn't happened to me. So and it's been almost like it's been three and a half years since my surgery. So I do. I'm like, that makes me feel a little bit better that it was probably excision. But still, the misinformation piece is so frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And we get left out of the loop on our own bodies, which is just it's it's really dehumanizing, I think, um, to to not even know what what. And I remember feeling like that and being like, well, I don't know what went on. Like, I still all have all these questions. Um, you know, I think people underestimate what it feels like for it to be your own body and to have that happen. Totally. Um, so the last kind of thing that we wanted to end on, uh, cause we, we kind of like to end with like either like advice or ways people can maybe move forward with this. But, um, you know, I have my own thoughts about what I would give folks who are dealing with mystery pain and potential endometriosis. Um, I didn't think I had it for so long. Like, uh, the tissue was building up, the doctor said for at least 10 or 15 years. Um, and I think part of it was when I started doing my own research, uh, everything I read was like extreme pain. Um, and I truly feel like for most people, they don't know if they fit into that category. Um, mm-hmm. I find I have a higher pain tolerance than most people, probably because I've dealt with this issue for so long. So for me, I would say, like, listen to your body. If you know something is wrong, think about the stats. One in 10 people with a uterus or formerly with a uterus have endometriosis, and most of those people go undiagnosed. Um, and so I guess, like, what would you say to folks if they were, like, starting this journey or kind of, you know, beginning to maybe feel like something larger is wrong? I would say um, interrogate what you think is a normal kind of pain. Um, like, for me, I was like, well, I can't go to school when I have my period and my pain is lasting two weeks out of the month. And, um, you know, I was like, well, maybe I just have bad periods. And then I realized that like, none of that is normal. If your period pain or any of your period symptoms, your, you know, gastro symptoms are making it hard for you to get through the day or to go to work or to lead a full life, then that is cause for concern. And don't underestimate that. The other thing I would say, which is what you said is really true, and I felt like that as well, where you gaslight yourself and you're like, well, you know, it's not that bad. And I look at all these other people and they're going to the ER and they're doing this. And, mm-hmm. You know, I've been to the ER, but um, it's, it's, you know, I was like, I've only been to the ER once and I know people who have been to the ER five times. So mine probably isn't that bad. And I I always joke, but I, it's really one of my favorite philosophies to live by is there's an episode um, of The Nanny with Fran Drescher and mm-hmm. her mother tells her, don't look through windows um, and I would say, don't look at, and that I always remember that when I'm comparing myself is when you see another person, you are not at all getting a, a clear picture on what their body feels like, on what their life looks like, um, you know, on the kind of support system they might have. And that impacts, you know, how their quality of life appears to you. Like, don't, don't compare yourself to other people exactly. ever with yeah. this disease. Don't look at someone and say they have it worse. So they deserve better care than me. Don't look at someone and say, you know, they don't look like they have it. Just focus on yourself and try to figure out what you think your baseline should be. And that should be like a normal, you know, you shouldn't be, you should be able to stand or sit what you mentioned earlier. Like mm-hmm. that was one of the things that tipped it for me was I couldn't stand for like longer than like five or six minutes without getting really dizzy. And I was like, something's really wrong. And my body is just not functioning. And I thought it was anxiety for a really long time. I was like, I'm starting law school. I must just be having panic attacks every six minutes. Oh my God. Um, you know, I was like, it's probably just anxiety. It's probably exhaustion. And you know, you know, your body, I would say, 
don't be afraid to advocate to yourself to a doctor. And that's really difficult. And so the other piece of advice that I always give people is if you can and you're comfortable, bring somebody to your appointments. Mm -hmm. If my mom comes to all my, my mom comes to all my appointments. Um, If it's not your mom, bring a friend that you trust who will speak up for you in the moment. Bring whoever you need to, but try your hardest to go to your appointments, at least your big ones. Um, with somebody in the room with you, because if you're comfortable with that, I think it can make a difference. And also when you leave to have that second pair of ears to be like, this is what they said. This is the information they gave me is really, um, I think really helpful. And I think if you're looking for an excision specialist, like I said, Nancy's Nook is a great place to find. She has a list of vetted doctors. That's where I found my guy who's fantastic. And I am really, really lucky. Um, yeah. And, and don't be afraid to get a second opinion, even if it's with two specialists, even if it's someone who really is supposed to know what they were, they're doing. Don't be afraid to, um, you know, reach out to another doctor. I know a lot of these excision specialists, because they are located all over the country, they do phone or Skype consultations. Um, I think Dr. Sinervo at the CEC in Georgia does Skype. I know my doctor does phone consultations. So if you want to get a second opinion or you just want to talk about how you've been feeling or how to have your case sort of worked through by someone who knows what they're doing, find an excision specialist who offers phone consultations or remote consultations and just get on the horn with them and, 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 and talk it out. And, you know, for me, I know that that was a hugely validating experience. The first time I talked with a doctor who understood this disease and, everybody goes into it with the fear that they're not going to find anything or they're going to be told they don't have it. And everybody comes out of it feeling like they've been heard for the first time. So Mm. definitely seek out doctors who do that. Um, you know, the Facebook support groups can be great resources for locating doctors. Um, you know, and, and just try to take care of yourself outside of it. Try to not, you know, try to do things for yourself that don't pertain to this, even if it's like, ordering something online and having that to look forward to coming in the mail, like try to do little things for yourself along the way that yeah. take you outside of this world. Cause it can be really, um, consuming and it's really, really hard to sort of see through that. So just try to give yourself, um, escapes when you can. Oh, you heard it here first. Get him on the horn. I was like, just realizing <laughs> I haven't heard that, that s- sentence in so long, but I'm very here for it. Um, well, Caroline, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking with us. Um, I know for me, as someone who has endometriosis, this was like wildly informative, even though it's been something I've lived with and feel like I knew at least quite a bit about. But uh, so this was absolutely incredible. And we really, really appreciate the time that you took to come and speak with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. I always love talking about this stuff. And it's always good to talk about it with folks who really understand, you know, the nuances of it and and, and the impact it has. So I really, really appreciate you all having me. Absolutely. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that was amazing. I'm really excited that we got to talk to Caroline. As I said, I've been a fan of her work for a while now. So that was very nice. Yay. Um. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, you can go rate and subscribe on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Season of the Bee. You can go to our website, seasonofthebee.com. You can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. What else can you do? You can go to our Patreon. You can give us more money. And Slide then us your dollars. Yeah, you can give us your money. 
And there will be more Patreon exclusive episodes coming your way soon. But as of now, there is the Roasted series mm-hmm. with Laura and I talking about astrology. There is an episode on Taylor Swift. There's an episode on the UK elections. Um, there's some other sweet exclusives, but there'll definitely be more coming soon. And is that everything? I think that's it. I think that's it. Well... <laughs> Hopefully you enjoy this episode. And the only other thing to say is that I love you, Laura. I love you and so much. And we love Kellen. We I love she Kellen. had to leave early, so. Love you both. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch. <laughs>